You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 19 is where we are in our study of God's Word this morning. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, we read beginning at verse 23. We'll read down to verse 30. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive one hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's ask our God's blessing on this time of preaching. Father in heaven, thank you for your perfect and holy word. The book that is in our hands this morning that we've just read from, that we will explain and apply in this sermon. Lord, it's unlike any book on the face of the planet. It is your gift to us. It is your self-revelation to us. It is the truth from beginning to end down to the punctuation that's found in it. We thank you, Lord, that that means we have confidence with respect to the things that have to do with life and eternity. We know the truth. And we ask now the author of this book, The Spirit of God, to take His sword into His hand and deal with our hearts in this next hour. We gather as Your church. We gather as the sheep that belong to You. We ask that You would feed us and help us, Lord, in every way that You know that we need help. And yet we're also mindful that there are people here with us this day and people who hear this sermon who don't know You. And we ask that in your great grace and mercy to sinners, you would open the blind eyes, you would unstop the deaf ears, you would grant a heart of flesh in the place of a heart of stone, that you would raise men and women from the dead spiritually in union with your Son. We ask that you would save. Help me, Lord, today to give expression of the things you've taught me. Help us to listen and to learn. Do your work in our lives in a way that we will not soon forget, that will, in fact, produce fruit that lasts. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews describes the people who will inherit eternal life. And as he describes them, he describes them in terms of genuine faith. The people who will inherit eternal life are those who have genuine faith. One section of that chapter sort of summarizes what the entire chapter describes and brings it into focus. In Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, the Bible says this, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, 
If they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire to a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He prepared a city for them. A people headed to a better country, a heavenly one. A people for whom God has prepared a city. And He describes them in verse 13, as those who died in faith. This is something that we all must be clear about. God saves sinners through faith. Faith in His Son. Faith in in Christ. There is one true and living God. Just one. And He is a trinity. And there is one Savior given to mankind. The eternal Son who stepped out of heaven and came to earth and took to Himself a sinless human nature to live under the law of God, die as a substitute on the cross, raised from the dead as we just sang about, lives forevermore. It is faith in Christ where salvation is known. It is in union with Jesus that men and women are raised from the dead spiritually and made alive forever together with their Savior. There is no salvation apart from faith in the biblical Christ. And just to be clear, the world is full of all kinds of Jesuses. But the only Jesus who is real and the only Jesus who will save is the Jesus of the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by grace alone. It is in Christ alone, and it is by faith alone. We are not saved by our works. We're saved by believing. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. And so it is not surprising, is it, that as the writer of Hebrews describes the people who will inherit eternal life, he describes them in the terms of faith. All these died in faith. What's interesting about that little section, if you would just turn there, I want you to see this with your eyes. Again, look at Hebrews 11. Beginning at verse 13, what's interesting about this little section is how he describes the people who died in faith. He is giving a description of genuine faith. And the first thing I want to note about it is it is continuing faith. Notice they died in faith. Their faith continued throughout their lives. They died in faith. So it's a faith that's not just the gift of God, it is sustained by God. And how does he describe them? When God grants faith, people see what they didn't see before. Verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, they hear what God promises and with the eyes of faith, they are able to perceive what you would only know because God told you about it. You can't see it with your physical eyes, but you see it with the eyes of faith because God has said it and you believe Him. Therefore, you see it and you welcome it, though you've not yet experienced it. When there is saving faith, there is spiritual sight. And where there is saving faith, not only does a man see what he didn't see before, he seeks what he didn't seek before. Verse 14, for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire to a better country. They seek a country of their own. They aspire to a better country that is a heavenly one. So they're living their lives seeing what can only be seen because God said it, and following after those things, aspiring to those things, seeking after those things. This is what saving faith looks like. And that finds expression in their words, which give voice to their expectations. Verse 13 Notice they don't just see these things and welcome them from a distance, but it says this, and having confessed, 
that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Listen to their conversation. Listen to their expectations. Listen to their aspirations. What is coming out of their mouth, which reflects what's coming out of their heart, they recognize we are living in a temporal age and this is not my home. We are strangers and exiles here, but we're living for and looking for and heading toward our forever home, a heavenly home, an eternal city that God has prepared for us. And the writer of Hebrews expands it beyond just those kinds of people or just the names that he's recorded in that 11th chapter because he says in verse 14, for those who say things like that, who say such things, anyone, everyone who talks like that, they make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own, a better country, a heavenly one. You see, this is what characterizes all of those of whom God is not ashamed to be called their God. All of those for whom He has prepared a city. So where you have saving faith, there's a new sight, there's a new seeking, there's a new saying, there's a, there's a, new, a new set of expectations, aspirations that you express even in your common conversation. Why? Why does this happen? Because God has changed your affections. And where your affections have changed, your aspirations have changed. What you really want has changed because what you really love has changed. Your evaluations have changed. When the Lord saves someone, you have not just trusted in Christ, you treasure Christ. And all that is found in Him is your treasure. It's what's most important to you. It's at the highest level of your priorities. This is what you're seeking after. This is what you're following after. This is what you're staking your life on, where your aspirations are stationed in Christ and everything that's promised in Christ. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. The kingdom of heaven, that is salvation, new life, as it is in Christ. When someone hears the gospel and God opens their heart and they're able to see the truth about salvation, now they have found their treasure for forever. And they're willing to sell anything and everything necessary in order to have that treasure that they've just discovered. That is the truth that Jesus is driving home in our verses this morning. He is teaching His disciples about the value system of the man or the woman who has genuine faith. Remember, He has just had a conversation with a rich young ruler. He offered that man eternal life in Himself Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the Bible says that man walked away grieved. Why? Verse 22, because he had great possessions. He valued his earthly riches more than he valued knowing Christ. He valued his earthly treasure more than he valued the treasures that were promised to him by the Son of God. The Bible says the young man walked away grieved. I mean, there were, in some part of his being, there was the desire to follow Jesus, but not at the cost of what he valued more, which means he estimated it to be of more value. Here it is. You can have Christ and what He promises, or you can have what you already have on this earth. And that man determined, but he did spiritual math, and he determined that what he already had was worth more than what could be found in Christ, promised by Christ. And so he walked away grieved. What this means is he didn't really see. For if he had seen, he would have sought 
And if he had sought, he would have followed Christ and it would have shown up in all of his life, including his conversation, just like we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. Well, it's not just the young man who is grieved. I believe Jesus is also grieved. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 10 that Jesus loved that man. Mark 10, 21. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. The young man walks away. He has worldly possessions, but he is bankrupt in his soul. As we're going to learn this morning, the disciples of Jesus did just the, just the opposite. They, they left all their earthly possessions to follow Jesus, and now they are eternally rich. It is that upside-down reality that Jesus is going to talk about in our verses. He wants us to recognize not only what is true treasure, but to equally recognize that it's a miracle whenever anyone embraces the true treasure. How do you explain you if you are a part of the genuine church? If you're a believer this morning, how do we explain you? How do we explain your faith in Christ? How do we explain what you see and what you seek after and what you confess about the temporary nature of this world and the everlasting treasure you're pursuing? How do we explain you? The answer is not by you, but by the power of God. God explains believers. God explains those people who embrace true treasure. And that's what Jesus teaches about in these verses. We're going to look at these verses this morning under three headings. If you want to write these down, this is where we're headed. Number one, the deception of earthly treasure. The deception of earthly treasure, verses 23 and 24. Second, the deliverance by divine power. The deliverance by divine power, verses 25 and 26. And then third, the destiny that matches heavenly desire. The destiny that matches heavenly desire, verses 27 through 30. First of all, notice with me the deception of earthly treasure. Let's back up for just a moment to the 22nd verse. Actually, verse 21. Jesus said to him, speaking to the rich young ruler, if you wish... To be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. By the way, I want you to notice, just for those who sometimes want to insist that there's a distinction to be made between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. You know, there are people who have taught this, A.W. Pink being one. There was some sort of code language going on between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. I just want you to notice he uses those two terms interchangeably. It's the same reality. It's the same thing he's talking about. There is no distinction being made. Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And in both cases he's talking about salvation. He's talking about the very kind of eternal treasure that was just promised to that young man. Jesus is not just reflecting, and I believe that He is, reflecting on His conversation with that young man Young man walks away grieving. It's still on the mind of Jesus. He's reflecting on it. But at the same time, he is taking this as a teaching opportunity for his disciples. And he indicates this because he gives two emphatic statements that say, in effect, listen up. Truly, I say to you, he says in verse 23, verse 24, and again, I say to you, both of those Statements are saying to his disciples, This is important. 
I want you to learn something from this encounter you've just witnessed. So what is Jesus teaching following this encounter? He's saying two things. First of all, rich people find it difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. Recognize this is not so much a statement about soteriology as it is about experience. It's an observational statement. What do I mean? I mean this. He's not saying that rich people represent a special kind of sinner. Poor people are somehow not as sinful as rich people. That's not what he's saying at all. You know this, but I want to say it. Poor people are just as spiritually dead by nature as rich people are. Poor people stand in need of the great, the miraculous grace of God to be saved just as much as rich people do. So when Jesus talks about the difficulty of the rich entering the kingdom of, of heaven or the kingdom of God, He is not saying they're a special class of sinner. Nor is He saying that God never saves rich people. He doesn't say the rich never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says they enter only with great difficulty. Of all the things in man's lost condition that the flesh holds on to instead of God, when offered Christ, when offered the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, of all the things the flesh holds on to, earthly wealth, earthly possessions, earthly riches are one of those things and high on the list. We can say it this way, earthly riches often compete with eternal values. Or to talk about it in the experiential realm, we can say it is rare to see the wealthy embrace salvation on God's terms. It is rare to see rich people recognize their spiritual poverty so that they value eternal treasure more than they value earthly treasure. And when Jesus teaches this, what He's also saying as a result is earthly riches are not always a blessing. Now just let that one settle on you for a moment. Earthly riches are not always a blessing. Or we could say earthly riches should not be something you necessarily desire. Is that true of you? Do you recognize that? And this was not a new truth. The Old Testament spoke of this. Proverbs 30 verse 8 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now this, this is coming from a believer who says, I recognize there, there are unique dangers that exist both in the realm of riches and in the realm of poverty. And Lord, you know what I can handle. You know what I'm capable of. What I want to do is honor you with my life. So please don't introduce me to circumstances that would get in the way of my faithfulness to you. And if that means that, that I don't have the riches that someone else has, then don't give it to me. And if it means that you know I can't handle a kind of poverty that other people have been faithful th through, don't put me there. Because I want to honor you above everything. So what Jesus is teaching here is that rich people don't have any advantage when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. If anything, it might, it might represent a disadvantage. Clearly, God has saved rich people. Abraham was a wealthy man. King David, obviously, king of Israel, had wealth. There have been people who have served God faithfully throughout the ages who were given much by God in the material realm. Even now, the Bible teaches that our God is not stingy with us, His children. He delights in blessing us. He gives us all things richly to enjoy. So the teaching is not that, save, that, that rich people can't be saved. But the idea that earthly wealth is always spiritually beneficial would be a mistake. That's the first thing he teaches. It is with difficulty 
that a rich person enters the kingdom of heaven. The second thing he, he teaches, verse 24, and again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The second thing he teaches, he just, he just picks it up a notch. He says rich people find it greatly difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just difficult, it is greatly difficult. He, he takes hold of what was a common saying in his day that people understood to describe something that was nigh impossible, a camel passing through the eye of a needle. That can't be done. Perhaps as Leon Morse has suggested, it was even humorous in nature, sort of a humorous way to drive home his point. Let's take a common saying that everybody has heard and everybody knows in that culture, and let me make the point that it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for someone who has earthly riches to have a right set of spiritual values so that they would, if need be, lose everything they have to embrace the one and only Savior God has given to men, Jesus Himself, and be saved. Why do earthly riches make it hard? Well, one reason is because they tend to produce a false feeling of independence. If you have money, it would seem sometimes to you, maybe to others in fact, that you don't need others the way some of us need others. A sense of independence, a sense of self-sufficiency, which amounts to pride. Riches allow us a kind of influence that not everybody has. Riches allow us a kind of independence that not everybody has. Riches even allow us to do things, sometimes even in the name of God, that not everyone can do. And so there's that temptation to glory in what we do. But Jesus wants His disciples to recognize is that none of that is to be taken as an indicator of God's approval or His acceptance. This is one of the things that Christ is battling with in His day. And you know what? It's a battle we have to our own day. The thought that if I'm blessed in the material realm, that must mean that God is pleased with me. Even take it a step further, that God has accepted me. I must be one of His children. William Hendrickson comments, the Lord clearly means that for a rich man in his own power to try to work or worm his way into the kingdom of God is impossible. So powerful is the hold which wealth has on the heart of the natural man. He is held fast by its bewitching charm and is thereby prevented from obtaining the attitude of heart and mind necessary for entrance into God's kingdom. Remember, Jesus has already taught this. To enter the kingdom, you must become like a child. You must humble yourself to be saved. You must trust entirely to be saved. Will you humble yourself and trust in God's remedy for sinners wholeheartedly? Rejecting every lying thought about some other way you can be saved. You become like a child. In your own eyes, no influence, no strength, no power, no resources, complete dependence, and trust in God's Son for salvation. Well, riches have a way of convincing people they're not that needy, they're not that desperate. They're not that weak. Why is Jesus teaching this? I think I've already indicated it, but let me underscore it. Because people do think that wealth is an indication of God's favor, an indication of God's blessing. As we share the gospel, it is vital that we help people understand the difference between common grace and saving grace. You hear this a lot if you are faithful to share the gospel. People 
who believe that they know the Lord because of how blessed they are in this world. Do you know that God is blessing people every day who will not be in heaven? If you understand that, would you say amen? God is blessing people in this world right now every day who will not be in heaven. God pours out merciful kindnesses every day on people who are not His children, who have not been reconciled to Him, who will be in hell. He's kind to them now and will pour out His wrath on them for forever. That's going on right now in this world. Common grace. God's gracious goodness to the world in its rebellion against Him. The world deserving the judgment of God right this moment. And yet today, the sun is shining. And somewhere the rain is falling. And the crops are growing. A world in rebellion against God, and yet your heart is beating. And your lungs are filling with air. And your mind is functioning. God is sustaining your life and blessing your life and giving you many kind, kindly communicated good things that you don't deserve. What is that? That's the common grace of God. Saved and lost, living in the same world with so many blessings. Just because God's good to you right now doesn't mean that you're saved. And yet this is how people think. If I'm not one of God's children, then why has He done so much for me? I thank the man upstairs. I thank the good Lord. You, you hear this sort of language all the time. Me and God, we have an understanding. If God doesn't love me in a saving way, then why was I healed from this disease? If I'm not one of God's children, then why has He blessed my business the way that He has? Why are my children healthy? Why is our family close and warm? You take the common grace blessings of God and you conclude from that, earthly riches we might say, you conclude that God has accepted you. Not recognizing that God is good to people who don't belong to Him. Matthew 5.44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In fact, He told a story to drive this point home in Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man, poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. You get the picture? The poor man is now in paradise and the rich man is in hell. Verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame Listen to this, but Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. This is, this is for forever. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. 
would you send Lazarus back from the dead? Would you send him to my family's home so that my brothers don't end up where I am? Next verse, but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. What's he saying? They have the word of God. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I tell you on the authority of Scripture this morning, if you don't know Jesus and if a sermon like this doesn't move you to repent and put your faith in Christ, we could have Lazarus standing in this room this very day and you wouldn't be any more convinced. Such is the uniqueness and the faithfulness and the trustworthiness and the power of Scripture. If you won't believe God's testimony in Scripture, you wouldn't believe if someone came to you from the dead. Don't be deceived by earthly treasure. The rich young man is deceived. He leaves grieved with all his treasures which amount to trash. He walks away from Jesus having been offered eternal treasure, but he doesn't regard those treasures as equal to what he already has. This is a deceived man. Don't you be deceived. The deception of earthly wealth. Second, notice the deliverance by divine power. Verse 25, And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Mark's account makes clear that the Lord was not just warning about the difficulty that rich people have. Rich people were just one example. Jesus is talking actually about the difficulty that all people have. Listen to Mark 10, verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to His disciples, this is after the rich young man walks away, He then looks at all of His disciples and He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at His words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Not just rich people. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples understand this because they're greatly astonished by what Jesus said. Verse 25, they were very astonished. Matthew uses two Greek words to describe their reaction. Both are strong words. A form of the word ekplaso, which means to cause to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. Amaze, astound, overwhelm. Literally, it means to strike out of one's senses, right? You're out of your mind with amazement. And then he uses the word sphadra, which means a very high point on a scale of extent. Very much, extremely, greatly. They are extremely struck out of their senses, is the idea. They are extremely astounded. He has just said something that shakes them to the core. Why are they astounded? But one possibility, of course, is they've been influenced by the, by the common Jewish mindset. It's still a common mindset today, as we've already talked about. The thought that if you have blessings in this world, it must mean God's acceptance. It must mean God's approval. And now you're saying that rich people actually find it difficult, nigh impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have shaken them. But I think it's something more. I think what they realized is we all have our treasures. If the rich man's riches stand as a barrier to his entrance into the kingdom, then what do my riches represent? What do I count to be treasure? What has my heart been fixed on? And any honest reflection will reveal that every human being born since Adam into this world lives in this world with their hearts set on something. What have you counted to be your treasure? What have you counted to be your riches? I will never forget when the Lord saved me at 16 years of age. I knew what my wealth was. It was the sport. The, how dumb is this? It, it was the sport of baseball. 
That, that was my treasure. And I can remember the Lord bringing me to the point where I heard no audible voice, but it was clear to my own soul, if it meant walking away from this to follow me, will you? And to be saved, the answer had to be yes. Not because I was saved by walking away from a stupid sport, but because Jesus must be my treasure where there is genuine salvation, the eyes are open, and Jesus is worth more than all this world combined. If you could have the whole world, but you lose your soul, what have you gained? If a man seeks to save his life, he'll lose it. But if he'll lose his life for my sake, Jesus says, he'll find it. I think the disciples recognize we all have our riches, which is why they ask the question they ask, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and they said, then who can be saved? Not, then how can any of those rich people be saved? How can any of us be saved? Then who can be saved? And the Lord's answer is so instructive. Listen to, listen to His answer. And looking at them, I, I think which is to, to drive home the point, once again, let me have your attention. Looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible. Let that sink in. If we're going to explain salvation by people, if we're going to say regeneration, new birth, is decisional, then no one will be saved. If we take the gospel and we set it before men and women, here it is, eternal treasure in Jesus Christ. Lose your life to have His. Turn from anything and everything you've ever trusted and accept Him. Turn from your sins and your selfish way of life, your self-exaltation and your pride, and embrace the Son of God for life. If we just set that opportunity before sinners and say, there He is, you can have Him if you want Him, no one comes to Him. They're all like that rich young man. They walk away with their earthly riches thinking they're wealthy when they're bankrupt. With men, it's impossible. But thanks be to God, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, but with God, all things are possible. And what He's just told us is the answer to the question... How does anyone repent of his or her sins and come to Christ? How do we explain you? How do we explain me? How do we explain a 16-year-old boy who's saying in his heart, I'll do that, Lord. I mean, if it means walking away from what I've loved, I'll do it. How do we explain this? The answer, the power of God. Not explained by you, explained by God. God saves sinners. Sinners don't save themselves. The humility necessary to be saved, the faith necessary to be saved, the new sight which results in the new valuation of what treasure is and what it's not necessary to be saved. This is granted by God when He saves someone. God produces the heart God grants the heart that turns from its false treasures to embrace the true treasure as it is in Jesus. God grants the heart of humility and faith, willing to turn from anything if it stands between the sinner and the Savior. God grants the desire and the ability to turn from sin and self and embrace Jesus for life. Jesus said it again and again as He met with sinners. He gave a command, follow me. God is the one who grants the faith, the desire, the willingness that results in obedience to that command. We obeyed the gospel because of the power of God. What this means is I'm not saved by my following. I'm saved by Christ. But everyone whom Christ saves follows Him. It's not like I determined in my own power, my own strength, my own wisdom, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then He saved me. No. 
I would have never followed him, but God rather granted me the humility, the faith, the desire, the ability to obey the command of the gospel. I embraced Christ. Christ saved me, and my following is the evidence that he was gracious to me and, and granted me that heart. Men do not deliver themselves by means of the gospel. God delivers men through the gospel by granting faith in his Son and then raises them from a spiritual grave in union with His Son. The gospel doesn't come to living people. The gospel comes to dead people. And then they hear the voice of the Son of God that opens their eyes, opens their heart, grants them understanding and desire, and they embrace the message that's been brought to them so that in union with Christ they are raised from the dead and live forevermore. Riches will deceive you, only God's power will deliver you. You don't have to be rich to have riches. Your riches may differ from the rich man's riches. But if it's just left to you, then who can be saved? And Christ's answer is nobody. With men, it's impossible. But thanks be to God, with Him, everything's possible. So that you sit here today a believer, if indeed you are, not in a way explained by you, but in a way explained by the grace of God. If you can see that, would you say amen? amen. Third, then notice the destiny that will match the heavenly desire. Verse 27, then Peter answered and said to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive one hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. But Christ has just taught His disciples results in a startling recognition. Peter, as he often is, the mouthpiece for all the disciples, recognizes something. And it is it's impactful. It's somewhat startling to him because notice his statement begins with the word, Behold! Look, we've left everything and followed you. Peter says, in effect, I guess it is possible with God. Because that's exactly what has happened in our case. That young man walked away with all his trash, counting it to be treasure. But we, Lord, look, we left everything to follow you. Think about the 11. And by the way, there, there can be a fake version of this, can't there? there? There have been people who've impoverished themselves for false religion. And there are people who have heard the truth of true religion and have impoverished themselves in a way that doesn't reflect genuine faith. Don't forget, Judas is in this group. But the 11 genuine disciples of Jesus, ask yourself, what did they hold on to instead of following Jesus? Did they hold on to their fishing business instead of following Jesus? Did they hold on to their political aspirations? Think about Simon the Zealot, Matthew 10.4. Here's a man who was full of political zeal, revolutionary zeal. Did he hold on to that instead of following Jesus? Did they hold on to their lucrative tax-gathering businesses, scams, Matthew, the very writer of this gospel account, Zacchaeus, not one of the twelve, but another example. Did they hold on to that instead of following Jesus? Did they hold on to a life of relative ease and popularity? They now will be mocked along with Jesus. They will be treated with scorn along with Jesus. Did they hold on to anything? Peter is telling the truth, isn't he, when he says, we left everything. And followed you. And you know, but I want to say this. I'm not 
saying this morning that to be saved in response to the gospel, it means that you divest yourself of everything in this world materially. What I'm saying is it no longer has you. You may have it, but it doesn't have you. Christ has you. He is your treasure. He comes first. He is above all. That's the heart God produces in a sinner whom He saves. In the case of these men, it was material and literal. We left everything to follow you. And it was true. And this ought to encourage us. Peter follows that startling recognition with a question. And Jesus does not rebuke his question. He says, having done this, what can we now expect? In verse 27, what then will there be for us? If you lose it all in this world to have Jesus, what do you have? And Jesus doesn't rebuke that question. He answers it. And what He tells them is something that ought to sober everybody here this morning. Because what He tells them is what you're going to have in the future will match the desires you've expressed in the present. What you have in the future will accord with your heart's desires right now. You're not going to find that they don't match. His disciples have valued heavenly treasure above earthly treasure, and the result will be everlasting heavenly treasure. That's exactly what He promised the rich young man, isn't it? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor. What does He promise him? You'll have treasure in heaven. He wasn't willing. The disciples were willing. What are they going to have? Everlasting treasure in heaven. Their destiny will match their desires. What does Jesus say they're going to have? Just quickly notice the breakdown. First of all, a new life and a new world. A new life and a new world. Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration... When it's all new, when the world is new and you are new, when it's all new, you're going to be there. A new life and a new world. And in that new world, you're going to be present with your king. And you'll be given responsibility in his kingdom. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, a kingdom with our king on his throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is what he's saying to his apostles. And there's a uniqueness to their particular responsibility in that kingdom. But notice in the very next verse, he expands it out to all of us. He says, and everyone who is left, houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, they're going to inherit eternal life also. So a new life and a new world, presence with our King who has saved us by His blood, responsibility in that kingdom. And then he says in verse 29, we're going to inherit a blessing unworthy to be compared to anything that we've lost. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms, and this is just a sampling of the sorts of things that God's people through the ages lose. Not only in terms of their earthly desires, what will be supreme on their priority list, but sometimes this is what they lose literally due to their faith in Christ. People who have followed Jesus have been driven away from their homes. People who have followed Jesus have lost the approval of their own family members even their closest family members, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers. People who follow Jesus at times have lost their children. They've lost their possessions, their farms. Notice he says, for my name's sake. This is not some general kind of thing. This is specific persecution because of the name of Christ. What does he say to us? You're going to receive more than what you lost. 100 times as much which is just a way of saying no one who follows Christ has really lost anything. You've gained everything. You've gained everything. 
The New Testament sounds forth this message again and again. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. When you're revealed, what you've lost in this world, you won't even mention compared with what you gain. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 1 Peter 5.1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. We are partakers of the glory that is to be revealed. Colossians 3.4, When Christ who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. When the day comes that Christ is revealed in glory, will you be revealed with Him? Is He your life? Is He your treasure? 1 Peter 1.5, speaking of believers, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 4.13, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. The day will come. And despite all the sufferings we have been through as, as the people of God on this side of eternity, the day will come when Jesus is revealed, and we won't just rejoice. We'll rejoice with exultation. What will we have, Lord? We've left everything to follow you. You'll have new life in a new world. You'll have presence with your king and responsibility in that kingdom. You'll have a blessing unworthy to be compared to anything that you've lost. And you will have security there in a world of blessing that never ends. You will inherit, in verse 29, you will inherit eternal life. We have inherited eternal life this very moment in terms of its spiritual reality, the very moment that you know Jesus, you've entered into a new kind of life. But what you know in your soul, one day you'll know in the world. One world under God, Jesus as its King, you revealed with Him in glory. But Jesus ends with a warning. Verse 30, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It will be a world, that future world, will be a world that in great measure manifests a great reversal. Many people who were thought to be great in this world will prove to be small. Many who were thought to be rich in this world will prove to be bankrupt. Many who were thought to be nothing in this world will prove to be the Savior's prize. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And everyone whom the Lord saves recognizes that, so that even if you have riches, you recognize that they're worth nothing compared to knowing Christ. And you would gladly be parted with them all if it meant you have Him whatever your riches are. But here's the warning. Don't imagine, don't imagine that the future won't prove to accord with the present. The rich young man made a present decision that if he never went on and repented, reflected his everlasting destiny. Christ's disciples made present decisions. What will we have then, Lord? We've left everything. Here's what you're going to have. Their future matched their present desires. And here's the great thing that makes me afraid in our day. I think we have churches full of people who want to imagine they're going to love heaven when they don't love the things of heaven right now. 
We're going to make Jesus the priority then, but He's not the priority now. Jesus will be my treasure then, but is He your treasure now? And there's a great deception, I think, in current evangelicalism that, that somehow imagines that you can have saving faith, which is explained by the power of God, and your life be virtually no different from an unbeliever's in terms of what you count to be your treasure and in terms of what you make your priorities. Your future is going to match your present desires. Do your present desires say that Jesus is Lord? Now, thanks be to God, you know this. Our present desires don't always reflect the reality of salvation, do they? The Lord has saved you. Don't you recognize, brother, sister, the ebb and flow of your spiritual affections? But when you recognize this truth, what should it do for us but drive us back to what we know is true treasure and say, Lord, I would make that choice all over again. So let me make that choice today. Let me make that choice this week. You are my treasure above anything and everything this world has to offer. And that is a manifestation of the power of God producing, granting repentance and faith to the believing sinner whom He saves by faith in His Son alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have treasure in heaven. The church would say, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for the clear explanation that our Lord gave to His disciples and therefore the clear explanation He's given to us. Pray for any man or woman in this room who does not yet know Your Son. May they this day throw away every other lying trust to place their faith in Your Son and Him alone for life. And may they count Him to be the treasure hidden in the field that we would sell everything we possess to go by that field to have that one treasure. Lord, let us examine our desires now and ask if they match where we say we're headed and wherever there's genuine life and genuine salvation, but the desires are not right now matching, then Lord, do Your work in our lives, producing in us both the will and the ability to do what pleases You. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.